Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the Word of God today. We're starting a new series in our church. Uh, We are looking at the book of John that will take us from today until through Advent until Christmas. Uh, We're only going to be looking at the first chapter of John. Um, And before we look at the first chapter, I wanted to breathe some life into this book a little bit. Um, Most scholars believe that John, the disciple of Jesus, the brother of James, um, was the one that wrote this book. And there's some that disagree and, you know, we can let it be what it is. But I'm going to take it from John, John's perspective, John as uh, the son of Zebedee and one of Jesus's closest, very best friends. So I want to kind of breathe some life into John here. Um, And so it's gonna be a little bit different than usual. So I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. Uh, But we're gonna start in John chapter one, verses one to five. And I think we're gonna sit in that same part next week as well, but I wanna read that for us today. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or it also says has not understood it. So we'll get more into this chapter next week. I wanted just um, just to open up a little bit about who John was. Um, so I did some research on John and I think that John was somebody who grew up, uh, with his younger brother, James. James is also one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, and he grew up with the rest of his siblings in a very small fishing village in Bethsaida in an area called Galilee. Insulas dotted the villages throughout Galilee. Families lived together in these small and large compounds. Uh, some had like 40 to 60 family members living in each compound at a time. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Each family knew each other. They served each other. They loved each other. They all like really enjoyed each other's presence and they got along really, really well. Um, And then every insula would have like the immediate family with it, living with their extended family. And anytime a family member would get married, that family would then prepare a place For that couple, they'd build onto their insula and build into the courtyard and add rooms and add spaces for their family to then live there. John was close to his cousins and close to his grandparents and his aunts and uncles and everybody who lived in that in that tiny insula. Uh, and, and it was tight knit. Everyone loved each other, you know, within reason. Of course, siblings bicker and we all get a, we get into little arguments here and there, but I can imagine they all really loved each other. I imagine the women would be cooking in the kitchen and like maybe off to the side of the courtyard and chopping veggies and hanging clothes up to dry and, and talking about how they could get their toddler to go to sleep. What kind of tricks of the trade are you using for your toddler? kneading bread together. And this family loved God. God was the most important part to John's life. They never missed a a Sabbath day to walk that dusty path to the local synagogue for worship. His father was a fisherman. 
And given that John and James both had reputations for their explosive energy and big personalities, so much so that people actually called them the Sons of Thunder, I'm guessing most people assumed that they would both become fishermen after their father instead of becoming a disciple of a rabbi. It was at the synagogue that they probably went to and loved and cherished where all the people would gather to hear their local rabbi or a traveling rabbi read from the Hebrew Bible. And before the rabbi would read from the scrolls, he would open the scroll and then he'd hold it out to the people for them to touch their finger to it and then touch their fingers to their lips because God had spoken. And then the rabbi would read from the scriptures. And they would hear the word of God read. And they would hear the rabbi then provide interpretation to the reading and give meaning to the reading. And then all the men would then discuss the interpretation. And they'd argue and debate with each other. And then they'd walk away more in love with God and the word of God than, than when they had arrived in the first place. John witnessed his father engage so deeply with the word of God that he wanted to engage and soak in God's word likewise. The synagogue was the most important piece to their village life because it was at the synagogue that young boys and young girls would go to school to hopefully become a disciple one day and then eventually become a rabbi. And at the beginning of their schooling, during the first day, these young six-year-olds would be met by their rabbi, the teacher, and the rabbi would take honey dripping from a fresh comb and would drizzle it on their writing slates. These slates would be used to copy God's words on and he'd drizzle these slates with honey. Honey represented God's favor. There was nothing more extravagant than honey. And as these new young students would lick the slates lick the honey off and lick them off of their fingers, the rabbi would quote, may the word of God be as honey on your lips. As they're licking the slates that they would use to write the word of God, he would say, may the word of God be like honey on your lips. May you find joy and pleasure and sweet goodness in ingesting the word of God into your very being. Everyone around Galilee knew that the only way that someone could be chosen to be a disciple was if that person was picked by a rabbi to be the rabbi's disciple. And the only way that could happen was if they had been the very best in their classes at school. Discipleship was reserved for the brightest, the smartest, the most diligent and creative students throughout their entire schooling from age six to age 15. And the way the schooling worked was from age six to 10, these kids attended Bet Sefer. And in Bet Sefer, the children would learn to read and write by reading and writing the Torah. And by the time they graduated from that level, they would have the Torah memorized. The Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament. And then most of the students would go on to the next level of learning called Bet Midrash from ages 10 to 15. 
Some of the girls obviously would be uh, married off about that time, they'd stop school. And during this time as well, the boys would then enter into their father's trade. So uh, they would help their father out doing the father's work while they were going to school. But during this time of their schooling, they would study the prophets and the writings. They would, they would make assessments and basic interpretations under their rabbi's leadership. They would learn to ask questions about the text and not necessarily seeking answers. So when Jesus tells people later on to be like little children, remember that part in the Bible? It, it's these kids that Jesus is referring to, like people who, kids who, who see scripture as new and moving and alive and challenging, where there's more questions than answers. There's less black and white, less right or wrong. These kids experienced God in the tension, not in the clear answers. In Bet Midrash, they would memorize the entire Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi, memorized. <laughs> That'd be so hard. So then the girls would, would go off, be married off around graduation. Most of the boys would then start working in their family's trade, their, their father's business, whether it was like fishing or carpentry, olive pressing masonry, things like that. And this very, very, very small percentage of the very brightest young men would become what every child had dreamed about becoming when they first started school. They could become in the process of searching out a rabbi. They'd be, have to be chosen, of course, but they could start looking for a rabbi they could learn from, and they would become something called Talmudim. Talmud is uh, translated into disciple. And it's so much more than like how we understand disciple in a lot of ways. It was more than just like knowing what your rabbi taught. Talmud in Hebrew means someone who wants to be as their rabbi is. The Talmudim would have great passion and, and severe commitment. They would, they would desire to know God and to walk with God just like their rabbi. They would give up everything to be like their rabbi. It was the highest calling anyone could ever dream about having. So when this like 17-year-old John and his younger brother James is like by the lake that day and they're with their dad fishing and a rabbi walked up and invited them to both follow him, it would have been the biggest honor. They would have been stoked. Their dad would have been stoked. You know, I used to read that as a kid and I'd be like, why was their dad not saying, dude, finish your day before you leave with this random guy over here? They would have been thrilled. It was the highest honor anyone ever could have. So of course they dropped everything to follow Jesus. John spent three years following Jesus, learning, imitating, soaking in his rabbi's words. He witnessed blind men seeing. He saw a dead man come alive. He ate bread and fish that had been multiplied. He smelled the rotting flesh of a leper's becoming healed with no stench left. He was scandalized by Jesus' unchaperoned conversation by the with the Samaritan woman by the well that day. I wonder if he had stones in his hands that he had to drop when he had been swept up by a mob ready to provide capital punishment to a naked, adulterous woman. He witnessed Jesus, his rabbi, bestow value and worth 
on a woman who deserved death. I bet John wondered if he would become a rabbi like Jesus someday, or even if he could, right? I know he, he saw his own propensity for wanting greatness. You know, his, his mom even said, hey, can my son sit on your right and your left? I, I know that he, was, he probably had a hard time forgiving someone who, who wronged him. Maybe that didn't come as naturally as it seemed to come to Jesus. Jesus seemed to love people first without any experience or any expectation from them, right? Jesus just like bestowed love on people all the time. And his love was something greater than John had ever experienced before. And that love of Jesus changed the way John saw the world. He became swept up in Jesus' call to love each other and to love God. So much so that when we read John's gospel, it is chock full of loving one another. Sometimes I wonder how long it was for John's perspective to shift from following Jesus as his rabbi and seeing him as like a really good teacher that he respected and admired to understanding that Jesus might be the Messiah, that might be the savior that his people had always longed for. And then I wonder how long it was for John to see Jesus as not only his Messiah, but actually God. That Jesus, his rabbi, his very closest friend, was actually God with skin on. I bet it took some time for him to grasp this. Like, I bet it wasn't until after Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. It probably didn't become clear until, like in any way, until after John received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And maybe even then it wasn't totally clear. I can imagine years passing John while he was leading the early church with the other first disciples and he's worshiping God. They're worshiping God together and they're adding to their number daily those who are being saved and they're sharing their resources with each other and they're loving one another and they're, they're avoiding getting arrested by Roman authorities. And I imagine John with the early church, with all of these new disciples, and he's around a table and they're reading from the Torah. He's reading out the word of God that he loved so much and he's reading it to his friends and he takes bread and he blesses it as he saw Jesus do. And he breaks it and he passes it out. I wonder if in one of those moments, the Holy Spirit breathed new meaning into the bread as he ate it, as it tasted like what he imagined manna in the desert tasted, sweet like honey, fresh from a honeycomb. Did he consume the sweet body of Christ in that bread while his mind was becoming transformed to understand what he was eating? That he was consuming the word of God? Did his memories of school with his rabbi dripping honey on his slate help transform his understanding of Jesus Christ, not as a man born with the power of God in him, but actually as the fullness of God born into a, uh, through a woman into Jesus? 
Did John recall the words spoken over him by his childhood rabbi saying, may the word of God be like honey on your lips? Did the holy communion of sweet bread, Christ's body broken for him, help John understand a deeper reality that he was consuming the word of God, the word of life, that didn't arrive one day through a birth, but maybe had always been from the beginning. The sweet word was with God and the word was God all along. I wonder if John held on to this truth for a while before speaking it out to the others. Did the eternal Christ this understanding of Jesus not being somebody who had died and then rose from the dead, almost like in a Moses or an Elijah sort of a way. Did, did he start to understand that maybe the eternal Christ wasn't simply a man, but was, 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 was God in flesh? Did, he, did that eternal Christ bring him peace? When his brother James was murdered by Herod Agrippa, beheaded for his faith in Christ at a very young age, did the eternal Christ bring John comfort throughout the continued onslaught of horrific persecution, Christians and Jews being hunted and slaughtered after the Jerusalem temple was destroyed 25 years after his brother's beheading? Did that eternal Christ bring him comfort when people fled Jerusalem? So many people fled Jerusalem, finding refuge in the hills and, and in isolated communities while he and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, continued to lead the Jerusalem church together, caring for each other, building each other up. And again and again, you guys, John witnessed his brothers. He witnessed his fellow disciples murdered and martyred for their faith in Christ. I bet he found himself growing increasingly critical of the Pharisees and ruling Jewish leaders who desired comfort and self-protection, making a sweet bed for Rome to belong. Over moral character and consistency and glorifying God. And what we see about John, even through the book of, of Acts, is we see that he continued to faithfully make disciples of Jesus. He faithfully led people to Christ and to the church. He devoted himself to telling the stories of Jesus while bearing witness to God's kingdom of love and grace and, and, and inclusion and, and nonviolent justice for all people. And then there was this time in John's life where his friends and people started to write these stories of Jesus down, like on these scrolls and, and compiling them and then copying them onto scrolls for other people to have. And, and John probably wondered like, well, I was with Jesus and a lot of my friends have died who were with Jesus before and the early disciples keep dying and, and, and I haven't, I, I'm still here. Should I, should I write down these stories too? Is this something that I should do as well? But, but maybe I'm not the brightest person. Maybe I'm not the best kind of person. Why would my words or my perspective matter? I bet he wrestled a little bit. But as he knew his time on earth was passing him by, even, even while he was confused why he had lived such a long time without falling into Roman hands, John felt the Holy Spirit tell him it was time. Around the age of 80 years old, John wrote the words 
that had been with him all along. Words that had been written by Moses after tasting that sweet honey-like manna in the wilderness that sustained and fed all God's people. Words that existed in Genesis, revealing a time before a time, a God that has always began then. And he knew that these words, if he, if he wrote these words out, people would be horrified by them. The way that he was equating the eternal God to what he believed was the eternal Christ. He knew that if he wrote these words down, he would be hunted. But he did not want anything to hold him back from writing what he knew that he needed to write And he knew these words had the possibility to further divide the Jews from the Christians, his people from his people. But the words also could become the unifier if either of God's people could look deeper than their gut reactions and would be willing to come before this gospel like a child. Like a child instead of black and white answers with easy, clear five steps rules to following God's kingdom. John's book requires a person to look deeper, to stay curious, to seek wholeheartedly, to ask questions and allow the answer to be more questions. John beckons the reader to step into this vast and glorious mystery of God's abundant love through Jesus Christ who was and is and is to come without needing to distill this mystery down into a box that we can present before others and say, look, here it is. This is all you need to know God and to follow Jesus. John gives this mystery space to belong. And John knew the first words he wrote would be the most important words he had ever written. Taking pen to the scroll, ink to the page. He wrote, in the beginning was the word. And now my friends, may the friendship of Christ, may the eternal presence of Jesus, may the word of God be like honey on your lips. Amen.